anything else other than the fact that I was a, uh, you know, a missionary. And, uh, and actually, it's not entirely different now. I have a unique gift of being able to shut down a conversation like that. I, I have that gift in all kinds of different ways. <laughs> I'm not the most uh, conversational type person. But uh, the one way I can do it that, that's, that's you know, pretty foolproof is to tell them what I do for a living. That will pretty much end that conversation. When I tell them I'm a pastor, oh, that's nice. I'll see you later. <laughs> that's kind of like telling someone you're a police officer. I'm sure that stops all kinds of conversations there, right? Like, eh, what can I tell them? What can I not tell them, you know? And so, um, well, today our topic, as you can see in your bulletin, you have an outline there in your bulletin, and it tells you the outline of the message today, and you got some blanks you can fill in there. And, and uh, our topic today is kind of one of those topics that it is not very difficult to shut down a conversation just by bringing up the word or the topic repentance. People are going to want to move on to something else, talk about just about anything else other than repentance. And, uh, and so I picked a whole sermon that way because you guys can be quiet all you want. I'm going to talk on it for this whole time. So I have a captive audience here. But uh, our message today is uh, called Repentance, the Misplaced Word. And... Uh, that word misplaced, you know, it's it's like lost. Like we've lost the word repentance. You don't, you kind of read read through your Bible, you know, and and you get to the word repentance and and you just keep moving, right? You're looking for the next word to come or the word right before it, you know, believe and repent or you're looking for something else. And it's not a common word today. It's not a a common topic of conversation. And and, uh, as we have spent our year really looking at 2 Chronicles 7.14, well, that, that passage really strongly talks about God's people turning from their wicked ways, which means repent, right? And so we're going to spend our entire message today talking about that word that does not often get discussed. And so uh, b- before we get to that point, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you this morning and we are glad that you are here and you have allowed us to be here. You have brought us here very actively. And so, Lord, we uh, give you praise and we worship you this morning. We declare that you are God. You are sovereign God who is high and lifted up and you're in control of our future and even our present. And Lord, you are good. And you have given us your word that we can learn about you and learn how to know you. And so, We rejoice in that. And this morning, as we open your word, we pray that you would work in us. Lord, I pray that we would be able to put aside those things before this morning and after this morning or even during right now that would distract us from hearing from your word about what you have for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you by your spirit would work. Lord, uh, we, we could talk about this topic and we could even do a good job of talking about this topic. But if you, uh, by your spirit, don't come and work this into our hearts, We're sort of left on our own, and we don't want to be left on our own. So, Lord, we look to you and ask that you would work in our hearts this morning by your Spirit. Pray that you would be glorified, and I I pray that uh, that we here would understand repentance, and much more than understand it, that we ourselves would be repentant of our sins. So, Lord, we come to you now and ask that you would work and that you would bless in our time this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start off and we're going to talk about the message of repentance. That's your first blank there. The message of repentance. 
And uh, you'll see that it's a theme that's consistent throughout all of Scripture. Sometimes different wording is used, and sometimes it's different messengers giving that message. But the message of repentance is a recurring theme throughout the Bible. And you can see that it takes place, first of all, before Jesus came. Uh, repentance, like it's not new with him. It's, it's all through Scripture, and, and we're not going to do a detailed uh, uh, passage through scripture to look at repentance being preached everywhere in the old testament leading up to jesus but if you think about moses himself that was part of his message he preached repentance to the nation of israel even when he gave the law right the two books probably of the bible that we think about the most when we think about the giving of the law would be uh, leviticus probably and deuteronomy the second giving of the law right and even in those where moses is conveying the law of god to the people of israel at the end, he talks about blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, right? Those are not fun passages. You know, if, if, uh, if, if your Bible reading is getting boring and you want something to spice it up a little, just read the last couple of chapters of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and, and you'll be a little wide-eyed because the, the curses that they experience are, uh, are huge. And even in that context, even in that very difficult context, right there, the Lord tells the people that if they will repent of their sin, he'll take them back and he'll heal them and he'll bring them back from whatever land he's, he's, he's sent them to and he'll bring them back into their own land. He will bless them if they will just repent, right? And, and so that's kind of an ongoing theme with those, uh, with those passages there, in Le- particularly Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 30 is where he's talking about the fact that if they will just repent of their sin that they're being punished and disciplined for, if they'll just repent and come back to him, he'll take them back and he'll heal them. And that's what our passage in Second Chronicles 7 is talking about. So before Jesus, all the way back to Moses, we hear repentance being preached. And we do even before that time. But, but after Moses, and you think about the message of the prophets, if you read through the major prophets or the minor prophets, the theme of repentance is a common theme. Turn from your wicked ways and turn back to the Lord. And so uh, it, it occurs all throughout the Old Testament. Um, it's a common theme. It's actually one of the core themes of all of Scripture, of us repenting. Even John the Baptist, uh, when he started his ministry, he started with that message, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So that's John the Baptist who's paving the way. He's making room for Jesus to come in, and that's his message as people, repent. So it's a common theme that we see uh, all before Jesus, and even after Jesus, right? Right? We're going to talk about Jesus' ministry today, but after Jesus, the same thing. In, in keeping with, with uh, this message that came before and that Jesus taught, Peter preached repentance at Pentecost and then afterwards. And then so did Paul. If you think about Paul's ministry, Paul the grace guy, right? He's preaching repentance to the people. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 21, he's saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders and he doesn't expect to see them again. And He ministered with them and to them for a long time and he's traveling by and so they, he stops and visits with them and he's talking about his ministry and uh, he characterizes it this way. He, he talks about his ministry as being testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul summed up his ministry, that's how he summed it up. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's Paul himself preaching about repentance it was a key theme for him and for peter and if you think back 
uh, all, all the way to the end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, the first few chapters there, the letters that Jesus dictates to the different churches there, uh, those seven letters in the beginning of uh, Revelation, many of them were commanded also to repent. And so it's a, it's a common theme. And, and we can summarize this way that uh, repentance is a core teaching in Scripture. All of the Bible has the message of turning from sin and turning toward God. It's a common theme. And, and so I've used the word repent probably 20 times right now. And, and uh, let's, let's define it just so it's very clear in our minds, right? The idea of repenting is, is the idea of turning. Turning from and turning towards. I've given the illustration before that, that we think probably more often we think and talk about faith or believing in Jesus like turning to Jesus, right? That's, that's turning to him and believing in him. Well, at the same time, the image of repentance is what we're turning from, right? Before we were Christians, we were right here and we had a hold of sin, right? And we were obedient to sin and sin was our burden. And we were, this is where our allegiance was, was to sin. And we were dead in our sins and we were under the judgment of God and the wrath of God was upon us, right? So that's where we were. We were obedient to sin and then God calls us to life and we turn from our sin and toward God. And so you can see it's the same act of turning. And when we talk about believing, that's the positive side of, of turning towards Jesus. Believing in Him and repentance is that negative aspect of what we're turning from, usually. Though there is a passage that uh, right there we just read in, in uh, Acts chapter 20 where he talked about repentance toward God, right? So we're repenting, we're turning toward God. So if, if we will have that straight in our mind, we will better understand the idea of faith and repentance. It's not two steps, is it? It's the same act of turning. It's just what I'm turning from is referred to as repentance usually, and what I'm turning towards is faith, right? That's belief. And so if we have that clear in our mind, it will make the rest of the day make a whole lot more sense. And it will make scripture make a whole lot more sense when you read somewhere and it talks about repenting, right? Does that just mean this one aspect? Is it the first step and then the second step is to believe? No, it's the same spinning. It's the same act of turning from and turning towards, right? It's not two steps. It's one step. And so we're going to get a little, little more clarity on that. So we've talked about the message of repentance as it was preached before Jesus and as it was preached after Jesus. And then let's talk now about it being preached by Jesus himself. Repentance. Matthew and Mark both record Jesus as actually starting his ministry with the message of repentance because of the nearness of the kingdom of God. That's his first sermon. Repent, right? Jesus comes on the scene, baptism happens, temptation happens, those things happen. Jesus comes out, what's his first message outline? Repent, repent and believe the gospel. That's where he starts out. That's the very beginning of his ministry. So obviously it was relatively important to Jesus himself, right? And then when he sent his disciples out to minister, in John chapter 6, he was giving them kind of a, a, a practicum, right? And he was sending them, them out to minister, and the, me, the message that they took them was to call the people to repentance. That's what he sent them to do. And so it was an important thing to him. So turn in your Bibles now to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, our passage today that we're mainly going to focus on for, uh, for the, the latter portion of our sermon is going to be in Luke chapter, chapter 13. We're going to be talking about verses 1 through 9. 
But I want us to kind of build up towards that to make sense of chapter 13, verses 1 through 9 by looking at Luke 12. Okay, we're not going to read the whole thing, but just what I want us to do is kind of walk through what Jesus is saying there in Luke chapter 12 that, that sets the scene for what then comes in Luke chapter 13. By the way, this is what we should do when we read the Bible, right? We should always set the scene. We should always have in mind what the context is. And in, uh, in, in school, we always used to say that context is king, right? That when you're trying to understand scripture, you've got to put it in its context. Otherwise, it's super easy to misread that, that verse or that passage if you pull it out from its context. So we're going we're gonna to keep chapter 13 in its context by looking at Luke chapter 12. So here we have Jesus teaching, and we'll see through this passage that Luke chapter 12 is actually a giant argument laying the foundation for the necessity of repentance. Each new thing that he talks about, each new encounter that he has, Luke is, is, is making clear to us that Jesus is laying the foundation for repentance. I'll walk through the passage here. First of all, Jesus reminds his disciples uh, in that first part there that nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. You do stuff and you do it in the dark, you do it in secret, or you, you do it with people who won't talk about it or whatever, right? You think it won't be revealed? Jesus said, nothing is covered up now that won't be revealed. It's going to be made visible. He says, the one they should fear is him who has authority to cast into hell, right? Let's not fear one another. Let's not fear man. Let's fear the one who has authority to cast into hell, right? So let's get a proper understanding, first of all, that our deeds are going to be made visible. And to whom are they going to be made visible? To the one who has the authority to cast into hell, right? That's the one that we need to fear. He tells a parable then about the foolishness of forgetting that a time will come when we will answer for our deeds before God. He says that's foolishness to forget that. He's trying to keep in our minds that that's what he has going on. He says, seek the kingdom of God instead of the things of this world because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Seek the kingdom of God, not this world. He's trying to instill in in the thinking of the people he's talking to that we are responsible and accountable to god and god's not deceived he sees it all so let's not be afraid let's not fear let's not live our lives with respect solely to this world around us or the people around us but let's live our lives with respect to and fear towards god himself who's the one to whom we will ultimately give an account he warns them always to stand at the ready to re, to, for the return of the master and not to be lulled into a life that the master will deem unworthy when he returns, that his punishment for that will be very great. Keep in mind that your master is returning. He's returning. He's been gone a long time. There's no sign of his return. He is returning. And we are to live in light of that always to stand at the ready for his return, Jesus says. And he warns them to be aware of the nearness of the kingdom of God and to make peace with God, our accuser, while there is still time to do so. Make peace with God. God himself is the accuser of the unbeliever. God is the one they should fear. God is actually the one who's ultimately their enemy because they, they, they are in a position of owing him, of being in debt to him. And so Jesus is trying to lay the foundation in all of chapter 12 for people to be in the right frame of mind to begin to think about, uh-oh, my own life, the things that I've done, the things I've tried to conceal, they're going to be revealed. The ways I've lived that, that aren't pleasing to God because I think, ah, 
There's no sign of him coming back. It's a long time. I've got, I've got time later to get, to get right with God or to do what I should do later on. Jesus said, don't think that way. He says, don't live in such a way that we, that we please ourselves in this life or we, or we fear one another in this life or we live in such a way that we're invested solely in this world, forgetting that there is a greater world to come. But invest in that one instead. That's the message of all of Luke chapter 12. So that's the ministry, uh, the message by Jesus about repentance. And so with all of that in mind, we move into the beginning of chapter 13. And the requirement of repentance, which is what we read about there in chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, the requirement of repentance. There were some present at that very time, meaning who had just heard all the stuff that you just heard, laying the foundation for the necessity of repentance. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So coming on the heels of the foundation that he's just laid for the necessity of repentance, getting, getting all of those pieces into place, what's the first thing that happens? Well, the first thing that happens is a deflection by some. A deflection by some. See what it says there? There were some present at that very time who heard all that other stuff who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. What in the world? Why did, why did they bring that up? Well, this is, this is kind of like the idea that Job's friends had in mind. If you remember the book of Job and all this stuff happens to Job and, and, uh, and Job's friends all say, Job, you must have done something wrong because God is obviously punishing you. Otherwise, these things wouldn't be happening in your life, right? And we often think that way. Did this bad thing happen to so-and-so because they'd done something wrong? I mean, really, you know, that's a pretty bad thing. And, you know, God, God usually treats people well who treat him well. So probably they had done something wrong and therefore deserved this thing. The book of Job is about God correcting that mistake. Correcting that mistake. But these guys bring up kind of a counter-argument or a deflection of the argument. And they want to talk about those Galileans who were horribly murdered by Pilate. So murdered in such a way that their blood was mingled with their sacrifices, right? So, I mean, that's a terrible way. You know, Job's situation was pretty bad and this situation's pretty bad. So they must have done something really bad. And it's people like that. They really should keep in mind, right, that, that we're going to give an answer to God and they should have cleaned up their lives. And, and they were the ones who were in need of repentance, right, Jesus? Right? See there, Jesus has been talking to them and they don't really like that. They kind of would rather talk about these guys who died, who were sacrificed. Or, or the, the ones on whom the Tower of Siloam fell, 18 people and they were killed. Surely those were bad guys, right? God killed them. They, God punished them for something. Right? Because these people talking to, them, talking to Jesus want to deflect the instruction to repent off of themselves onto these other people who are obviously really bad. Or these things wouldn't have happened. So they're deflecting it off. And don't we often do that? Wouldn't we rather talk in the abstract about things like repentance, about things like sin, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't we rather talk about so-and-so 
or something we read in the Bible or something we read in the news, right? Wouldn't we rather talk about somebody else needing to repent rather than ourselves? So these guys are kind of like us. You know, it's pretty easy to find ourselves in this passage here. They wanted to talk about a, a test case that's out there. It was in the abstract. It was removed from them. It doesn't have any, it's nothing convicting to me. Let's talk about this situation out here. So they tried to deflect the conversation away from themselves. I, I do that. And you do that. What does Jesus do? So they, they've, they've tried deflection while Jesus tries redirection, brings it back around to them. So we have redirection by Jesus. Jesus isn't having any of it. He knows what's in their heads when they make those comments. He knows they're just like Job's friends, that they're trying to think in this way and they're trying to deflect that, right? And so Jesus says what he says there in verse 2. Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Is that what you're thinking? You're you're thinking like Job's friends. You're you're thinking about these guys. No, I tell you. First of all, he's correcting their theology. (laughs) No, I tell you. And then he gets right down to application for them personally. And he says... But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or what about those guys on whom the Tower of Siloam fell? 18 guys, right? Were they worse than everyone else who lives in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. So he corrects their theology again. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So he corrects their theology of their objection that they had made for one thing. It's not the way God deals with people. And then the second thing is he brings it right back and says, nice try. You know, you wanted to talk about this other test case. Well, let me correct your theology, but let's talk about you. Let's talk about you. Let's bring it right down to conversation about you. He directs the conversation right back to them personally. So we have deflection by them. We have redirection by Jesus. And now we have application by all. Application by all. Notice what he says there. And he says it verbatim two times. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's like he's talking to a group of people, right? And they've just said, well, some people need to repent. Like those guys who were killed by Pilate and like those other guys who were squashed by the tower. Those people need to repent, obviously. And Jesus says, no, but I tell you, group, you must repent or you will all individually suffer these consequences you will all individually perish so he he wants every single person to be thinking not about their neighbor because boy it's easy to think about your neighbor when the pastor's preaching right (laughs) because you know what your neighbor's done wrong your spouse you know your kids it's really easy to do that and he says no think about yourself let's bring it right back down and not think about those other people not talk about them but bring it back to you he's not interested in talking about repentance in the abstract He's not talking theory. He's not talking generalities. He's not talking about those people over there. He wants to include personally the people that he's talking to. And he wants them to see their own personal need for repentance. So that's a powerful little speech Jesus just made. But he goes on. He moves right into a parable about the fruit of repentance. The fruit of repentance. So we have verses 6 through 9, this little parable that he tells. It's a small one. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. 
And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So he tells that little parable, very interesting little parable. And the main theme is that fruit is expected. There is fruit expected. The owner came and visited his vineyard for the purpose of gathering some figs from his fig tree. He wanted fruit. The reason he had the fig tree in the first place was so it would provide him with some figs. That's what he wanted. Why else would he have a fig tree? Right? Now, we live in Nevada. There are lots of reasons to have trees here, and shade is a primary one. <laughs> right? And it was hot in this, in this country too, but, but uh, in, in, in the biblical world, the reason to have a fruit-bearing tree was so you could gather the fruit from it. Right? So you could gather the fruit from it. We, uh, we have a neighbor who has these crabapple trees and, they, and, and they're heavy with fruit, right? He, he doesn't gather them, but they're heavy with fruit. But in this world, the reason to have a fruit-bearing tree is to get the fruit. We lived in Russia. The, uh, the second place we lived in there had a, um, had a crabapple tree on the property and it was you know, kind of all fenced in and kind of the way they do in Russia and, and walled off and stuff. And, and uh, we had this, this crabapple tree. Well, you know, we had little kids and, and we didn't, you know, we were busy and whatever. So we didn't do anything with these crab apples. And so the kids would try and eat them. And, you know, you've had crab apples, right? <laughs> they got to, you know, pucker you up pretty quick. And so they would try them and they were terrible. And so the crab apples just got kind of left alone until eventually we got tired of having so many of them around. And we decided we had seen the movie Cheaper by the Dozen and thought apple schmear would be a fun game. And so we got, you know, like a broomstick or something. The kids would pitch me apples and I would hit the apples, you know, and just apples scattered everywhere. We made no, no, you know, you know, use of them. <laughs> and so we didn't think much of it. It made a mess, but you can kind of clean up the mess. Not a big deal. And we weren't using the crab apples anyway until our Russian friends came over. And our Russian friends see the, you know, the carnage <laughs> everywhere. And they're looking and they're just like offended that we would not use those crab apples. How dare we waste that good fruit? Like, how did this all happen? Like what, you know, something must have happened terrible to cause all these apples to be destroyed. And well, you know, me with a baseball bat is how, you know, how it happened. But, and that's kind of the way, it, that's the way it was in this world. The reason to have the tree is to bear fruit. That's the only reason you have it. Shade is a whole secondary thing, not a big deal. And besides, you can plant another tree. The reason he had it there was because he wanted to get fruit from it. Well, of course, the application, or when we translate uh, this parable into reality, what it tells us is that God expects. He looks for, and in fact, he demands the fruit of repentance in our lives. Unless you repent, Jesus says, you will all likewise perish. That's the reason for the tree, is to bear the fruit commanding repentance that's a strong term right I'm using relatively strong language well if you think about acts chapter 17 and paul is speaking and in athens at the areopagus right he's he's talking to them there and uh what does he tell them 
He tells them it's very interesting the way he goes about evangelism to pagans, people who don't have an Old Testament background. They don't have any clear understanding of God and how he builds that and stuff. But this is very interesting what he says in Acts chapter 17 and verse 30. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He commands repentance. There is a... There is a, a, a disservice, would be the very best word I could use for this, that, that the church in America has, has uh, perpetuated on, on the people of our country for the last, I don't know, decades at least, maybe even century. And I'm not saying every church, of course, and, and, and I don't think we've done this. But it's, a, it's really a better way to put it would be a false gospel. It's the idea that faith and repentance are two separate steps and faith is really all God asks for. And repentance, if you get around to that, that's good. You'll be a better Christian if you get around to repenting. But it's the faith that's the key thing. You see how that one spin, that one turn, has been made into two separate parts? And so you have discussions about, yeah, people who believe in Jesus, but they've never repented. Biblically, it's not possible. That's not possible. There is one movement that happens. It's the same turn that is from sin and towards God. It's the same movement. And so you can't separate it. And we run into all manner of issues, theological issues, cultural issues, uh, behavioral issues within the church. I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not just talking about our church. That's, that's not what I mean. I'm talking broadly within evangelicalism, particularly within the United States. We have made it something that it is not. And, and then, then we're left with, okay, if faith and repentance are two different things, what do we preach? Are we, is, is repentance a work that's required in salvation? Well, no, we don't believe in a work salvation, so it must be faith alone. And then that's a good thing if you get around to repentance. That is not the way the Bible talks about faith and repentance. The way the Bible talks about faith and repentance is one and the same. It's just a different direction of looking at the same issue. And so... In the Bible, there cannot be a Christian who has believed in Jesus who has not repented. It's not possible. It's not possible. And that's kind of what Jesus is talking about here. If we would read the Bible according to the Bible, we would have a little bit better understanding of this and we wouldn't have issues of thinking about can a Christian be someone who has faith but not repentance? It's not a biblical concept at all. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about in our passage right here. So he comes looking for fruit, and you can see that fruit is expected. But we find, unfortunately, that fruit is lacking, right? He shows up, he looks through this tree, he finds none. And so he says to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. There's nothing there. It's got the leaves, the tree is apparently well tended by the vine dresser, right? Everything's good, everything looks like it should be, and there is no fruit on this fig tree. He doesn't find any. And so he's, he's disappointed, understandably. And so he gives the instructions to the vine dresser. He says, cut it down. Cut that fig tree down. Why should it use up the ground? I could, I could dig that tree up and put another one there that would bear fruit, and then there would be something useful coming from that tree, coming from that part of the vineyard. 
Why should it use up the ground? It's planted for the purpose of bearing fruit. If it's not bearing fruit, cut it down and replace it. Make room for something else that will, will produce fruit. So translate that for us. God expects Christians to bear fruit. He expects Christians to bear fruit just like this owner expected the tree to bear figs. That's the point of Jesus' message here. If they don't bear fruit, they aren't truly Christians at all. Never were, and God will ultimately cut them down. He will judge them, and they will go to hell. That is hard. I know it's hard for you to hear. I can see it on your faces. It is hard for me to say it, but it's what Jesus is talking about. If there is no fruit, if the fruit is lacking, it's evidence that there is no true faith. So fruit is lacking, but the patience of God is incredible. And it's found right in this difficult passage. Fruit and the patience of God. The question is when does the owner come to check for the fruit? He came year after year for three years. I don't know anything about fruit trees. I'm, I'm sure many of you do, but they're, they're not going to bear fruit, you know, the first, the first year you plant them, right? You got to give them a couple of years, right? Even with our next door neighbors who uh, had, their, had, had his crab apple trees trimmed, the next year they didn't bear anything, right? It, it was weird. And then the next year, whew, it's huge, right? God is patient, he doesn't show up when, the, when the, the tree is too young and immature to bear fruit. He comes and he checks. Not too disappointed, right? It's, it's growing. It's maturing. Comes again the next season. He checks. Okay, well, he's, he's not too disappointed. It's growing and maturing and it's getting close. And he comes again the third year. There should be fruit. If this thing's going to bear fruit, it should be there. And he checks. And he's disappointed. Because he planted this tree looking for fruit. And there wasn't any. And so he says, cut it down. Why should it, you know, waste that corner of the yard? Cut it down, put another one there that will bear fruit. And the vine dresser jumps in. And the vine dresser says, no, just, just wait. Let me, let me cultivate it just a little bit more for another year. Come back in another year and check. And if after that time, when I've done some cultivation, if after that time you find fruit, then outstanding. Now you have a fruit-bearing fig tree, which is your goal. But if you come back next year and there's no fruit, well, it's not going to bear fruit. And so you can cut it down. And so you can look at that two different ways. You can look at that and focus on the cutting down. He's going to cut it down. What a, what a tragic thing. Of course, that is a tragic thing. Or you can look at the patience and the mercy of the owner who said, okay, all right, there should have been fruit this year. I came, I checked, I've, I've been here for years, I know this tree, it's mature enough, there should be fruit, but there's not fruit. But he, he allows himself to, you know, okay, we'll wait another year cultivate that thing, work on it, and we'll wait another year. And in another year, hopefully there'll be fruit. And then we'll rejoice and we'll eat the figs and we'll have a fruit-bearing tree. But if there's not, it's not going to bear fruit. And so I'm going to cut it down. God is patient. 
He is patient. And His patience is beautiful. And it's life-sparing. He gives second chances, doesn't He? And third chances. And fourth chances. God is so patient. He's willing to wait an entire other year for there to be fruit there. He's patient. He waits a whole other growing season. Okay, we'll give it more time. We'll let it mature. We'll cultivate it. We want to see fruit. We'll give it more time. He is patient, and his patience is beautiful. But his patience has an end. His patience has an end. If, after giving extra time for extra care and extra maturing and extra pruning and extra work on this tree, way more than is necessary, if after that time there's no fruit, we'll cut it down. And that's startling. And Jesus means that to be startling. He means that to be startling. The question remains, when? When does his patience end? Well, here it's another season, right? It's another season. He, he waits a long time for this thing to bear fruit. It doesn't bear fruit, so he agrees to wait for an even longer time for this thing to bear fruit. If it doesn't bear fruit, there will come an end. So how, how long? When is that? When, when will the time of cutting down be? I don't know. It's another season in the parable, but in life, when will it be? God is so patient. He waits for us. A brand new Christian, someone who just becomes a Christian, right? They're turning from their sin. They, they turn and they turn towards Jesus. Are you going to be able to tell immediately by looking at their life that that person's a new Christian? Wow, they cleaned this up, cleaned that up, you know, did all this kind of... You expect fruit, but how fast do you expect it? Well, sometimes it comes a little slowly. Some people's lives miraculously change like overnight. It's incredible to watch some people get saved and the things that change in their mind. But other times, people get saved and you, you believe firmly that they're saved and you see just a little bit of fruit and, and then a little bit of fruit after another period of time. And you're patient with them and you're like, come on already, you know, like let's mature, right? But you start seeing fruit and you start seeing more fruit and it takes some time. God is patient. Fruit doesn't appear immediately. But fruit must appear eventually. It must. Or that person was never really converted. That's the hard thing about this. So as we bring this down to application for you and for me, how do we think about this? Well, Christian... Are you showing evidence in your life that you've turned from sin and toward God? Maybe some of us show a mountain of evidence, and it is crystal clear to everyone who knows you. And maybe some of us, there's some evidence. You might, you might have to, you know, kind of squint a little. But there's some evidence, right? But Christian, are you showing evidence in your life that you have turned from sin and toward God? Is your life actively changing from what it was under the dominion of sin into Christ-likeness? Are you seeing changes? Now, I'm guessing those changes are not happening quickly enough for you, Christian. Frankly, probably not happening quickly enough for your spouse, (laughs) right? But they better be happening. Those changes are happening, right? Growth is a slow thing. The fig tree grows slowly and it develops fruit slowly over time. But Christian, are you showing evidence of that? For some of you, the honest answer to that question is no. No. 
I don't see true evidence from the heart of a change, a conversion from my allegiance to sin to my allegiance to God. I don't see fruit. If that's the case, Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. If the answer is no, you need to repent or the consequences are huge. A prayer doesn't save you. God saves you when you truly turn away from your sin as death and turn to God as your only life in Christ. That's when he saves you. And that's when you will begin to see signs of the fruit of repentance in your life. This is a tough subject, and it's mainly tough for us because we have in our, in our thinking many times separated faith and repentance, and we've made them two separate things. We would have no issue saying to someone, if you don't believe, you're not saved. If you don't have faith in Christ, you're not saved. But it's a little harder, isn't it, to say, if you haven't repented of your sin, you're not saved. But it's to say the same thing. It's to say the same thing. And so what I want for all of us, for each one here, is for us to understand what it means to turn from our sin and our allegiance to sin, turn from that and turn towards God himself and hold on to him. That's the moment of salvation. That's the moment of repentance. That's the moment when fruit begins to grow in your life. And some may sprout right away and and some may take time. But there must be fruit. When must there be fruit? I don't know. And this passage doesn't say. But it says there will come a time when the owner will get tired of coming and checking for fruit. He's patient. He's so patient. He came for three years. And he was willing to even come for a fourth year. But there is a time when his patience comes to an end. And he will just say, you're not a Christian. We've been talking about Second Chronicles 7.14 and looking at that. And, and uh, that's talking to a group of people. And it's talking to the nation of Israel particularly. But it has application for us personally. I'm going to read it to us and close with it. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And the challenge we have this morning is for you individually and for me individually. I love to talk about the plight of our nation, right? It's so easy to talk about it out there. It's so easy to talk about the sin that's out there. And I've got this plank in my eye. I've got this sin in my own heart. And I need to repent of it. So my challenge for you and my challenge for me this morning is for us to repent and turn from our wicked ways. And for some, that means for the very first time that you need to turn from your sin, turn away from it and turn to Jesus and trust in him as your only source of life and give up on sin. You see how futile it is to try and hold on to both God and sin at the same time? If we're trying to do that, and we're trying to hold on to both at the same time, we're not really holding on to God at all. We're clinging to our sin. Turn from your sin, repent, and turn towards God for salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins.
Let's pray. Lord, Luke 13 says some difficult things. And there are other difficult passages in your word that talk about the necessity of repentance and talk about the fruit in keeping with repentance that we must bear. And those things are startling. And they're startling to me to study about them and to preach about them. They're startling to hear about, I'm certain. Oh, but the patience, the patience of God. Lord, I praise you that you are patient with me. I praise you that you have been patient with me all these years. And you rejoice over the fruit that you do see. And you cultivate for more fruit. Lord, I pray for us this morning. I pray that each one here who knows you would continually repent and turn from their sin toward you. That they would prefer you over sin. That they would cling to you rather than cling to the burden of sin, which is death. They would cling to you, cling to you. That that... that fruit would grow in their lives. Pray that they would be encouraged by that. I pray that you would be pleased by the fruit that they bear. For those of us who have no fruit, maybe we don't even claim to be Christians. I pray, Lord, that we would turn from our sin, that we would turn from our allegiance to your enemy, and we instead would turn to you and cling to you and receive life in Christ and the forgiveness of our sins, life eternal, Lord, I thank you and I praise you that you save sinners. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.